In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. If ever there was a metaphor for the times we live in, it's the story of Oregon's exploding whale. Now, this was a bit before my time, but the anniversary of the exploding whale story was this week, November 12th, way back in 1970. I'd never heard of it before, and for those of you who never have either, or maybe you need a reminder, it went something like this. A dead sperm whale weighing some 8 tons washed up on the sands near Florence. It was too big to just bury and too big to push back whole into the ocean in hopes something out there was hungry enough to eat it, and having been dead a while, no one wanted to cut it up either. So the job of getting rid of it fell to a local highway engineer, who decided the best way to deal with it was to use some dynamite, which he hoped would just vaporize it. Or that was the plan. Ask Wiley Coyote how plans involving dynamite can quickly go astray. Now, I don't know anything about dynamite, but others do, including veterans who spent time blowing up things in the army during World War II. And one of them, visiting from Eugene for the day, tried to warn the engineer that this was not going to go the way the engineer thought it would. But being a government employee, the engineer scoffed and wouldn't listen. Amateurs and civilians, what do they know? He was confident it would work and told the reporter covering the story as such, although he did admit he wasn't exactly sure just how much dynamite he should use. So the engineer and his crew put a half ton of dynamite under and around the whale, which sounds like a lot, but you've got eight tons of rotting whale sitting on top of it. After moving everyone well back, they pushed the plunger. If you're thinking this sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon, you're not wrong. In the words of a young Paul Lindman covering the story, what happened next was, quote, a mighty burst of tomato juice. The crowd was showered with bits and goo and dodged large dangerous chunks that rained down from the sky, including one huge chunk that flew nearly 500 yards through the air and flattened the passenger compartment of a brand new Oldsmobile, which happened to belong to the veteran who had tried to help that he had just bought a couple days ago. As you can imagine, the story went viral and the exploding whale story went around the world. In the aftermath, despite the obvious, the engineer claimed to another reporter that it went just exactly right. Now, having embarrassed Florence, you'd think the engineer would get fired, or at the very least, a reprimand. Instead, he was promoted up the ladder to the Medford office and decades later still claimed it was all a success. Wrong. Nothing went wrong. So there you are, a know-it-all government that makes a bad situation worse, raining down ruin on people, crushing your property, and spins the whole thing, claiming success out of obvious-to-everyone failure. And instead of accepting responsibility, they get promoted. On today's show, think of that exploding whale as we talk about Bidenomics and what government bureaucrats are doing with your tax dollars and blowing up the national debt. Think about that exploding burst of tomato juice when we talk about what the far-left environmentalists are doing to the environmental movement. Instead of saving the whales, they're killing them, just not with dynamite, but something far more expensive. And think about Wile E. Coyote and the shadow of an anvil fast approaching, 
when you hear about bureaucrats in one of Oregon's counties outsmarting themselves. Sometimes, Oregon is its own metaphor. To talk about that, I'd like to welcome back Jonathan Williams. He is the American Legislative Exchange Council's Executive Vice President of Policy and their Chief Economist. Jonathan, it is great to talk to you. Well, always great to talk to you, my friend. Yeah, you know, the Republicans passed, with Democrat help, a a new temporary budget, uh, also known as a continuing resolution. The only thing continuing and resolute about this, it seems to be, is Congress's commitment to spending other people's money. Anything jump out at you in this particular spending package? Well, you know, this is obviously I'm I'm a fan of uh, Speaker Johnson. Uh, he's a he was an Alec member when he served in Louisiana House, and uh, you know, obviously getting thrown into this situation with a couple of weeks before the government shutdown was not ideal for anybody involved. And so, I think you know his plan, his outline is he took on the speakership of you know building around the principles of core conservative values of fiscal responsibility and spending uh, control. Um, I think that's exactly what he plans to do as we get into 2024. Uh, but I think, you know, that's, uh, as he said the other day, after this uh, deal passed and uh, it needed to you know, go through on a bipartisan uh, basis, there are a lot of Republicans that didn't want to vote for that because, you know, quite frankly, there's a problem with these short-term you know, CRs that, you know, uh, yes. the continuing resolutions, as you outlined, that do nothing to uh, go at the fraud, waste, and abuse, and overspending broadly that's happened and creating so many of the problems with inflation and with so many other ills in our economy. I do have, uh, I took take him at his word. I think Speaker Johnson's a, a man of his word, and I think that he's going to do everything in his power uh, to go at the culprit for all this, and that is government overspending. We don't have a lack of revenue in Washington, D.C. As we've said many times, we mm-hmm. have a huge, huge spending addiction. Right, right. I'm glad to hear that you think well of uh, Speaker Mike Johnson. I was very happy to see Kevin McCarthy go. Uh, I mean, and and especially in the waning days there, we really got to see what a snake he was. I mean, I never liked him to begin with, but I mean, it was just, you know, always something kind of slimy about him. But then we got to hear what exactly he was doing behind closed doors to sabotage the other speaker candidates. And, you know, what a, well, insert words you can't use on the radio. Uh, do you think that he's going to, he meaning uh, Mike Johnson, do you think he's finally going to be able to get Congress whipped into shape in terms of, yes, we need to fix this spending problem? Well, from his perspective, as you know, it's kind of a, a basic political equation here, but, you know, his, it's going to be a tough path for any Republican speaker right now with the bare majorities that they have. And, uh, you know, I'm not a, a a partisan guy, as you know, uh, Mark, and approaches from a policy basis. But, you know, putting on my personal hat and talking the political realities of it for a second, you know, Republicans, if they want to actually put together a, a package to reduce spending and address this just monstrosity that's before us in terms of the federal debt and all of its problems that it's causing for families and businesses across the country, uh, they're going to need more voices for fiscal responsibility. And by the way, there should be Democrat voices yes. for fiscal responsibility as well for those that care about our country. Because, I mean, what's going on right now isn't just a dollars and cents issue. I mean, this is quickly becoming a national security issue, right? With all the conflicts going around around the world, uh, certainly U.S. leadership, you know, needed in so many ways. And now that we are beholden to this just massive amount of debt, uh, this is a a national security concern, plain and simple. Well, and it's not just the debt, it's servicing that debt, of course, that's that's the huge issue. Recently, Moody's downgraded the long-term outlook here for American uh, credit, and we'll come back to that in in the next segment. But we spent $162 billion more to service the interest this last year than the year before. I mean, that would have entirely paid for the Ukraine war. 
That's right. I mean, these are it's an essential point in that uh, that now the interest cost on the debt uh, more than a trillion dollars per year, and uh, quickly approaching two trillion if we're on this current trajectory. Mm-hmm. I mean, where we're at right now, Mark, and I thought this would be you know years into the future, is now that the interest cost with the rate interest rate environment uh, that we see, the interest rate cost is now the third largest line item in the federal budget, only after Social Security and the Department of Health and Human Services and all the Obamacare and everything that goes in that area, right? I mean, this is number three in terms of what the federal government spends today. This is an outrage. I mean, it's just an outrageous situation. It needs to be addressed immediately. Now, of course, how do you do that is the big question, given the narrow majorities. And then, of course, given the fact that you have Chuck Schumer uh, running the Senate and Joe Biden in the White House. I mean, it's going to take uh, a situation where we're going to need people of both parties to wake up, smell the coffee and realize this is more than a partisan issue. This is an American issue that we need to address immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick before we break, um, you had mentioned the continuing resolutions and that they are relying on these now rather than budgets. Is there something about that? continuing resolution that allows them to maybe slip in some extra spending that they maybe wouldn't otherwise in a budget? I mean, what's the allure of those? Well, it, the allure of it is the path of least resistance, right? And you take something that you already approved and you move it forward and you've already dealt with objections before. Now, uh, Speaker Johnson, I believe, uh, was you know very persistent on making this a, a clean CR where things wouldn't get added in and slept, you know it just slipped in like you mentioned, Mark, because that is a real threat. It happens you know, often as part of the D.C. budget uh, circus that happens. And so I think that's something that uh, he should be applauded for, for fighting for the clean CR. But the other piece of this is, you know, you have to go back to the days of the great Newt Gingrich as a conservative speaker in the 1990s, where we actually put a real budget together. Uh, and, uh, you know, the most people's political lifetimes, it hasn't happened in Washington, yeah. D.C. And so getting away from that short-term approach and actually doing the heavy lifting, it's not, you know, easy work, but it's essential work if we're going to get to the bottom of the issue of overspending. Yep, yep. And, and that's the real issue. All right, come back and we we'll talk more about all that spending happening in Washington. We're doing that with Jonathan Williams. He's the American Legislative Exchange Council's Executive Vice President of Policy and their Chief Economist. More next. You can find out more about ALEC and encourage your state representatives to join so they can be part of the solution by heading to ALEC, that's A-L-E-C, ALEC.org. Joining American Legislative Exchange Council is more than a badge of honor in a world which seems to have gone off the fiscal cliff. They get access to model legislation to dig your state out of things. And our guest for this half of today's show, Jonathan Williams, is their executive vice president of policy, their chief economist, and the co-author of ALEC's annual Rich States, Poor States so your legislator knows just how bad things really are. And no surprise, Oregon has consistently ranked on the bad side. And we'll be talking more about Oregon in our next segment. But for this one, we're looking at the federal issues. And and Jonathan, as I mentioned, Moody's recently downgraded the U.S. credit rating from stable to negative. Uh, This follows Fitch's downgrading the U.S. a few months back. And according to Reuters, quote, Moody's said in a statement that continued political polarization in Congress raises the risk that lawmakers will not be able to reach consensus on a fiscal plan to slow the decline in debt affordability, which I think is a polite way of saying, guys, we're driving off a cliff here and you better get your act together. You know, when consumers have their credit scores dropped, it makes borrowing more difficult and more expensive. Do these two downgrades have any tangible effect here or is it more of an advisory to investors who might be wondering whether or not they should buy U.S. bonds? 
Yeah, right. I mean, there is, uh, you know, you see this kind of a change, and I think the answer is all the above, right? It's going to be, you know, uh, something that has to be taken into consideration as these things are priced on the market. Uh, there is, you know, it, it essentially a enhanced, uh, you know, default risk that is uh, discussed when you see these kind of rankings go down. We follow this very closely at the state level. I mean, where you see huge spreads between states that are governed well and states that, you know, have the same issues of overspending and pension debt and liabilities. And so, you know, this is a clear warning sign. It's not the first. And unfortunately, unless we really get things turned around quickly in Washington, it won't be the last. Uh, And these kind of things, obviously, in the United States are able to be withstood better than, let's say, smaller economies around the world, like we saw with the sovereign debt crisis in Greece and and other countries that their debt to GDP ratio got out of control. And they certainly didn't have the advantage of being the world reserve currency, for instance, uh, or having the, the magnitude of an economy in the United States. Uh, but just seeing this trajectory and seeing this announcement is uh, painful news. And, and hopefully, though, I mean, the, the optimism, the optimistic part of me, Mark, you know, thinks that this hopefully will be a wake up call uh, to those currently serving in Congress. And, and obviously, there's going to be a whole lot of new faces coming into Congress after the 2024 elections, uh, regardless of party. And uh, that should be a huge wake up call as people are out there talking to constituents and realizing the job that they're signing up for. Well, I would certainly hope so. It's shocking that this all happened at a time when the Biden administration has been out there constantly saying and propagandist partners there in the mainstream media saying how wonderful the economy is. And right after that downgrading, the deputy secretary of Treasury spewed this little bit of propaganda. The Biden administration has demonstrated its commitment to fiscal sustainability, including through the more than one trillion in deficit reduction included in the June debt limit deal, as well as President Biden's budget proposals. That would reduce the deficit by nearly $2.5 trillion over the next 10 years. I mean, over 10 years, that's a quarter of a trillion per year. That's hardly anything. Our debt servicing went up almost that much last year. And then meanwhile, the U.S. budget deficit for 2023 has widened to $1.7 trillion. So where is the uh, fiscal sustainability in that? <laughs> that's a really good question. There's a huge disconnect, right? And there's a huge disconnect for what Americans continue to feel out there, whether it's inflation, uh, which is obviously all tied together with the loss of uh, value of the dollar, with the debt issues, and, the, and the, really the potential uh, for a, a debt crisis in the United States if things aren't changed. Uh, so I do think uh, in the case of the Biden administration, their hand is incredibly weak in terms of the actual data now coming in. Uh, they've been relying in many cases, as you know, on this GDP data. There was a strong quarter that was a bit unexpected. But I mean, one thing for Americans to remember on GDP data is that government growth of spending yes. is included as a positive in yes. GDP. I have and never so thought that made sense. Like this, and it's so important that people just isolate that out. There's a way of looking at GDP. I encourage people to look it up for themselves where you can subtract out the government piece of GDP and have private sector GDP essentially uh, only. And that's, I think, the much more accurate yes. measure to take a look at both for the feds and, and the state level when we're looking at state level GSP type growth. And so the Biden administration has a weak hand. I think it's getting weaker as the new data comes in. Uh, but obviously they have a uh, apparatus uh, that is looking at 2024 for a potential re-election for the president. They need to try to put, in this case, uh, what appears to be lipstick on a pig when it comes to the economic data. Well, last year we had what a lot of people were calling the worst bond market ever until this year. Now this year is the worst bond market ever. It looks like investors are not exactly anxious to be funding more government spending. So if you take out the government spending and GDP, what is the private GDP looking like? 
Well, it's it's a whole lot weaker, right, than the, than the top line number uh, shows. I mean, that's something that uh, is uh, is very clear uh, that we have seen over the years is there can be a huge departure in those two numbers. And uh, we have to go back and check the actual quarter-by-quarter quarter, uh, data there. But just the huge ramp-up in the government printing presses during the Biden administration, uh, unprecedented spending growth, I mean, that is going to be a much larger delta there on the difference between private GDP and overall uh, GDP uh, numbers. Uh, pretty much consistently coming out of the pandemic with with uh, whether it's ARPA, whether it's the so-called bipartisan infrastructure package or any of the other massive spending packages. And that's, I think that's important that is really confusing, I think, for many of the folks that we talk to at the state level is given all the facts that we know about debt level spending, interest costs, and a new interest rate environment, uh, the Biden administration seems content on just doubling down on increasing spending and coming up for more government program ideas, uh, perhaps to uh, to repay constituencies of his or to look towards a political lens versus uh, something that's going to really get us out of this uh, economic uh, conundrum that we're in. Let's hope that there's a time for a change of heart from the president. I sincerely hope. Well, I would certainly hope so. Um uh, real quick here, Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney, the Beavis and Bud head of Congress, recently called for a commission to stabilize our national debt, and this would be required to produce a report on how to fix things with specific steps by May 1st, 2025. I mean, this whole thing is cowardly. They both decided not to run, and now that they're headed out the door after having been part of the problem for decades between them, now they want fiscal restraint, and it's going to take a year and a half to come up with these solutions. Do you really need a commission to figure out you can't spend more than you earn? Well, as, as my friend and co-author Art Laffer likes to say, I mean, this isn't rocket surgery. I mean, this is basic common sense budgeting that needs to happen, and it cannot wait until 2025 mm-hmm. to start to fix the issue. But it's a whole lot easier to take the approach of, well, this isn't my issue, and so I'm going to recommend that we take these tough steps when I'm out of office. You know, you would like to see American leaders while they're in office and have chairmanships in some cases or have the levers of power to be able to use that influence while they're there and uh, actually take care of things where there's still a whole lot of uh, more hope to actually turn things around. As you know, with any financial problem, uh, Mark, as you talk to a financial advisor, you, you're experienced in this area. You know, it's uh, it's an issue of these problems don't get better on their own with time. There needs to be corrective action taken. We know it works. I mean, 49 of the 50 states have balanced budget requirements, as I say all the time. I mean, real meaningful limits on the growth of government spending exist in places like Tabor in Colorado, their Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, and other states. It's not that difficult. It can be done. We have the tools in place. Now we just need real leadership yeah. in Washington. Yeah. We- you know, that's why I'm so really, uh, I think, uh, optimistic about Speaker Johnson, given his principles that he outlined when he yes. became Speaker of the House. Yes, and now we just need to see a spine to back up those principles. Okay, that only in Oregon story I mentioned in my opener coming up next, although I suspect it's not just Oregon. We'll talk about that with Jonathan Williams of American Legislative Exchange Council. And welcome back. We're talking today with Jonathan Williams. He's the executive vice president of policy at ALEC. That's the American Legislative Exchange Council. You can visit them at ALEC, A-L-E-C dot org. And uh, Jonathan, I'd like to talk a little bit about Oregon here. We have a situation that feels like it's an only an Oregon kind of situation. And let me just encapsulate what's going on here in Oregon. In 1998, Hynix, the chip maker, spent $1.6 billion building a chip factory near Eugene in Lane County. 
Ten years later, they shut it down, laid off 1,400 workers, and assuming an average of 50000 per worker, that represents $70 million of taxable income. That $1.6 billion factory sat empty and idle for seven years, eventually sold for $20 million, a massive loss. That company that bought it never opened. They sold it to Corning for $13 million, so another $7 million loss. They also never opened. They sold it to its now current owner, Strata Cash, in 2020 for $6.3 million, and they planned to open in 2021 and said they would hire several hundred workers, but COVID hit and derailed those plans. But now here we are, 2023, and they're finally ready to get going. And to make that happen, the state of Oregon awarded them a grant of $19 million from the recent budget. But here's the rub. Lane County is blocking this from going forward because they want their pound of flesh. Oregon can't award the money, as it turns out, uh, the way that the law is written, until the property taxes are paid. And Lane County is is insisting that they're owed $2 million. In fact, they've taken the new owner to court, claiming the property is actually worth $50 million, whereas Stratacash says it's only worth $11 million. So my question is this, aside from the blazingly stupid, obstinate property tax feudal lords blocking this, how does anyone not see that $12 million per year of taxable income using just $40,000 average per those 300 workers, how does anyone not see that $12 million per year, that's a lot more income than zero per year from a building that isn't improving with age? I mean, I know math is down the list here in educational outcomes for Oregon, but I mean, even a Democrat bureaucrat can see $12 million per year is a lot greater than zero. Please tell me that this level of stupidity is something that you see all the time in other counties across the country and not unique to Oregon. <laughs> this may be a special case. Like clearly, the uh, public school wow. system isn't working for, for some out there to, uh, to get to the bottom of uh, what is a clearly uh, winning a proposition, right? I mean, to, would you like job creation or not? I mean, it gets to an important bigger point, though, which is, you know, when you look at localities and states all across the country, you know, they can, uh, in many cases, want to get greedy, want to charge businesses more. Businesses don't pay taxes. People pay taxes. Right. It's an important concept, right? And if you want jobs and you want more people and you want this economic activity, there are uh, certain situations where you need to uh, create a special uh, kind of uh, environment like this to get people to open up and certainly not put roadblocks in their place, right? I mean, obviously, you want to keep taxes low for everybody across the board, but yeah, what an incredibly uh, a silly example, right? This is that's unbelievable. I don't see that every day, I'll tell you. Mm. Well, you know, we used the tar and feather politicians, and uh, it's kind of a pity that's gone out of fashion. Um, the other thing that we've seen here in Oregon is there was a recent article. It talked about income inequality grew yet again here in Oregon. And by income inequality, uh, just so people are aware, it's not some DEI social justice kind of initiative. It refers to the gap between the poor and the wealthy. Is that something that you're seeing everywhere, or is it uh, more in cases like Oregon? Well, I, I didn't think that could be possible in a state like Oregon, given the progressive individuals who run the state government in uh, in Salem at the massive progressive income taxes. I thought that was supposed to solve all of that, Mark. I'm a little <laughs> bit confused. I know. Again, it it's, shouldn't be rocket surgery, but apparently it is. Um, but the overall point there, Mark, is, you know, the states that generally, uh, you know, all joking aside, I mean, the states that have the highest taxes, have the most progressive systems, counterintuitively sometimes have the biggest issues with this inequality gap. And uh, you know, if it's something that folks care about, the you know, most easy way to deal with it is not through the tax code, because it clearly doesn't work. Whether you look at California, you look at Oregon, other high tax, big government states are oftentimes the worst offenders in that regard. Mm. 
Well, um, another piece of Oregon here in Salem, they shot down by big margins in this most recent election, a payroll tax. And what it amounted to was if you earned a paycheck from a company somewhere in Salem, they were going to ding you, even if you didn't live or work inside Salem. And of course, the reason they're doing it is because Salem, like so many other Democrat-controlled cities, want more money to do more things and have overspent in doing so and are facing a shortfall. I think they're like $100 million or maybe it's just $30 million, uh, you know, peanuts there. But anyway, if this had gone through, it would have been disastrous. I mean, you can see where this would have headed because before long, every city would be doing this. Uh, and plus, it gets back to a bedrock of Americanism, taxation without representation, because you're being taxed without the ability to vote out the people taxing you. That's right. Yeah, it was great. It was great to see that result. Actually, I uh, was just talking to Oregon uh, State Representative Ed Deal about this, and he was very excited about it, shared the news with the vote margin. I mean, it just proves that, uh, you know, some rationality does come back to home when it comes to voting on common sense tax matters. I mean, ex- even uh, Illinois voted down the progressive income tax and kept their state flat tax. Illinois voters wised up to those kind of schemes. But I mean, your point on uh, not taxing non-residents is so important and to make sure that people have that representation to be able to decide their own uh, tax burdens, right, as residents. Uh, This is one of the biggest problems that has plagued uh, cities like Detroit, uh, back in my home state of Michigan, as well as cities like St. Louis and others that have have tried this approach and has been disastrous to economic development and to job creation in in those cities. And of course, now with mobile workers, uh, you know, being all over after the pandemic, and this, I don't think we're going back to five-day work weeks in some industries, maybe forever in our lifetimes. You know, this is even more important now. It's just economic suicide that states and cities commit when they try to tax non-residents, but especially in the cities, it's it's just a horrible economic development decision. And, you know, case study Detroit and St. Louis, if you need any more. Yeah, really. Uh, You know, it's just a a textbook example of what happens when cities or uh, other jurisdictions just decide to start taxing people to death. People do move. You know, it's just a fact of life. Uh, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're up against the clock. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Always great to be with you, my friend. Save the whales used to be the rallying cry of Greenpeace and other activists back in the day. They would literally risk their lives by driving their boats between whales and whaling vessels, putting themselves in the way of harpoons. And when that wasn't enough, environmentalists would sue the government to protect endangered species. But that was then. Now there's hundreds of billions of dollars to profit from global warming thanks to government subsidies to pay for offshore wind farms. And if some whales have to die to get those billions, well, so be it, apparently. Because endangered species like the right whale in the Atlantic, of which there are only a few hundred, have been washing up dead right where those offshore wind farms just happen to have sprung up. In an odd turn of events, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, or CPAC, and the Heartland Institute, both of which are not exactly flaming liberal organizations, announced earlier this week their intent to sue the government for violating the Endangered Species Act. To talk about that, I'd like to welcome Terry Johnson to the show. He's a senior policy advisor uh, for CPAC. Terry, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see you have a background in the private sector and public sector. So tell us a bit about yourself and how your work led you to CFACT and where you are today. Sure. So the uh, I guess the most direct connection is the, the last uh, job I had before I retired was a uh, presidential appointment and Senate confirmation and all that. And uh, it was uh, running something called the St. Lawrence Seaway. 
which are the locks that connect the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean, uh, owned by the U.S. government and by Canada. And uh, it gets cold up there. Uh, (laughs) So we're, surprisingly enough, uh, so about three months out of the year, the the locks are closed because of ice. So this is back in in the, about 2005, and uh, the uh, you know, gore film, uh, you know, Inconvenient Truth, was all over the place. And I said, I I got to find out about this global warming thing. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we can stay open longer. You know, uh, with uh, <laughs> warming temperatures. And I looked the more I looked at it. I looked at it. I said, this is rubbish. Hmm. This, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? The CO2 being a pollutant, that's just nuts. Uh, so uh, I uh, looked, and uh, CFAC was the group that seemed to be the, the most uh, out front there on this. And, and uh, Craig Rucker and I got to know each other and like each other, and so I became an advisor. And uh, we put together a, a group uh, to oppose uh, these uh, offshore wind they call them farms. I call them factories because that's what they are yeah. uh, off uh, the East Coast. And uh, lo and behold, now we're in a position where we've given the feds a uh, 60-day notice that uh, unless they change their policy on this and uh, do something that's going to save the right whales, uh, we're going to have to litigate. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in depth in the next segment here. But the lawsuit that you're considering is to, as you say, stop a planned wind farm off the shores of Virginia. That's an area that you know well, having worked in Virginia. What can you tell us about those waters? I mean, are they prime fishing areas or shipping lanes or or are they largely empty? And so it's a good place to put them. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, I did, I was I was chairman of something called the Virginia Port Authority, which is the uh, obviously the port of Virginia there in Hampton Roads. Uh, and uh, so got to know that area very well, and uh, it's highly defense-oriented. Mm. Uh, there's uh, the biggest uh, naval port uh, on the East Coast is there, and uh, you have lots of aircraft carriers and submarines and so forth. So uh, you go ahead and, and, and put a whole bunch of spinning turbine blades off of the coast, uh, that that's going to interfere. It has to with uh, their the defense operations with the uh, search and rescue of the Coast Guard. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it doesn't do anything for the climate. It's very expensive. It's very unreliable and uh, has all those other uh, negative things about it. So that's uh, that's kind of where I was uh, coming from when I joined up with CFAC. Hmm. Looking back. Um, because I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Greenpeace and all these other ones. Did you ever imagine a time when conservatives would be the ones suing the government to protect whales and the far left would be willing to kill them to get billions for windmills? Uh, No, I didn't. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of uh, uh, completely upside down, but the, but the the quote unquote environmental organizations, they've all been corrupted uh, by the, the wind industry. Uh, uh, It's just, uh, a question of money and a question of cash flow. And, uh, you know, you, for them, it used to be save the whales. Now it's save our cash flow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, unfortunate and, but it, it, it is what it is. And we just have to, uh, fight it with the tools that we have. And one of them, uh, is, uh, 
the Endangered Species Act uh, and protection of the of the right whale, and and uh, that's what we're we're doing. Uh, and hopefully, uh, we're going to uh, derail uh, this uh, this march towards uh, uh, offshore wind factories. Well, I would certainly hope so. And uh, as you say, these organizations have been corrupted. And when they claim CO2 is a pollutant, you know they're not using anything resembling science. Okay, let's go and take a break there. Coming up, a CFACT announced they are intending to sue to stop a wind farm in Virginia because the government was violating the Endangered Species Act. Who had that on their bingo card for 2023? We'll dig into that next with Terry Johnson, Senior Policy Advisor for CFACT. And welcome back. This is the I Spy Radio Show. We're talking with Terry Johnson, a senior policy advisor at CFAC. That's Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. You can find out more about them, and they have great articles, too, at cfact.org. That's cfact.org, and we'll link several of those related to today's show and their fight to stop these offshore wind farms that the Biden administration is determined to plop in an ocean near you. Today's show is 13-46. Uh, just look for that and other Related links down in the references section towards the bottom of the page. And we're talking today about CFACT recently sending the Biden administration a 60-day notice of intent to sue to protect endangered whales and to block the Virginia wind farm under consideration. And uh, from your press release, I'd like to read this. Uh, CFACT and Heartland Institute assert that the biological opinion issued by the National Marine Fisheries Service fails to consider the cumulative impact of the entire East Coast offshore wind program ordered by the Biden administration and ignores, quote, the best scientific information available about the endangered population of North Atlantic right whale. So the cumulative impact of the entire East Coast windshore program, could this lawsuit have an impact beyond uh, Virginia and shut them all down? Sure. I mean, uh, what's happened is that uh, the uh, feds, uh, Boehm and uh, National Marine Fisheries, uh, what they've done is they've they've looked at each individual wind farm slash factory by itself, uh, rather than all of the impacts that are going to be occurring from uh, all of the wind factories together, stretching from Maine down to Florida, uh, which is what they should do because that's the migratory path of the right whale. Mm. Uh, so uh, it, it's a pretty clear legal violation. You can't cut things into pieces and say, oh, if this little piece has no impact, uh, then the other little piece has no impact, and we put it all together, it has no impact. It doesn't work that way. It works the opposite way. Of course it does uh, if you put them all together, and that's what the Endangered Species Act says from a matter of law, not, not opinion. You can't do that. Uh, legally uh, under the Endangered uh, Species Act. Hmm. You guys also say this, uh, quote, the biological opinion found that the Virginia offshore wind farm would not cause a single death of that species of whale over its 30-year projected lifetime, uh, meaning of the wind farm, although it did acknowledge that the wind project could result in level B harassment. Now, how on earth could they possibly reasonably claim that the wind farm would not ever cause a single death but even so, they say it could result in indirect deaths. I guess the reasoning there is indirectly wiping out an endangered species. That's okay. It's not like we directly did it. Does that about sum up their logic here? Yeah, that that uh, kind of uh, is a puzzler, isn't it? Where's the logic behind that? Uh, there isn't. Uh, so 
Yeah, so what what happened is uh, before these wind factories built, they have to do what's called sonar mapping uh, or sonar bombing of the bottom of the ocean by uh, these uh, ships that uh, are, are pre-construction ships. And uh, lo and behold, after they started doing that, dead whales started washing up on the East Coast. Uh, you know, you know, lots of them in New York and New Jersey. And uh, the feds, of course, oh, there's, there's no connection between that and these uh, dead whales. And, and, of course, there is. What they also did is gave to these ships uh, a uh, permission called a take permit, right. uh, which is the harassment you're talking about. And you add them up, and there's about 160 of them uh, off the East Coast. There's only 350 right whales. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> just logic tells you if you harass half of the population, uh, you're going to have some uh, killing of the right whales. Uh, it's just uh, inevitable. Well, and, and take permits, um, we've heard that from other environmental issues um, when they're trying to close down the forest here in, in Oregon. That's That was part of that. They will issue some take permits, and essentially it means that, yes, some endangered species are likely to be harmed in this or killed in this case. Um, we do know that this type of sonar mapping has been found to interfere with the hearing of marine animals. Uh, in fact, you, you mentioned this in your press release that environmental groups have successfully sued the Navy. Uh, to restrict sonar mapping that's currently being conducted in the Pacific Ocean. Um, so, aside from the whole coincidence things, how did they not? If if there's if there's already been those lawsuits, how do they not acknowledge that in this situation? Uh, that's an excellent question, and we're going to find out the answer. Um, mm. What uh, we have to do under the Endangered Species Act is issue the sixty day notice letter saying uh, we uh, are prepared to litigate, but we uh, can't do it for 60 days uh, under the uh, under the ESA. So we're taking that step. Uh, as you probably heard, uh, there are many uh, wind developers who have just quit yes. uh, off the East Coast uh, because the economics don't work uh, for them, including Orsted, the largest wind developer in the world, yeah. said we're quitting. We're we're not rebidding. We're not uh, postponing. We're quitting and, and going away. I think that tells you something yes. about the financial uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, aside from the whales, are there other marine life being impacted by these windmills? We've been talking sonar, but some of these wind farms have been up there for a number of years. Are you seeing things like dolphins or other animals washing up on shore dead? Yes, yeah, sure there are. Uh, whales, of course, are the most obvious. Uh, the uh, It's indisputable that uh, these spinning turbines kill lots of birds, lots of bats, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, federal government, again, has given uh, to uh, some of these developers take permits, uh, which allows them to kill eagles. Uh, if you and I did it, we'd be paying a fine, oh, maybe absolutely. facing jail. But yeah. if you're if you're a wind developer, uh, no, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, put, putting aside where these are being located, the windmills themselves are risky. And again, this is from your press release. You say that Siemens Energy, which will supply the 14 megawatt turbines, 
recently announced a write-down of $2.4 billion for the third quarter, leading to an annual loss of €4.5 billion Euros, uh, due to costly mechanical failures in the new wind turbines. The company has said that its turbine failures are, quote, a quality issue, which will also, quote, will take years to fix. So you've got a risky location, risking endangered animals, risking billions of taxpayer dollars on risky turbines. Why does any normal person think that these are viable projects? Well, uh, that's well put. Uh, I don't think any normal person would. But mm-hmm. if you're the Biden administration, you've got uh, this ideology that you're following uh, that you think will get you votes, uh, which is uh, really just kind of intense virtue signaling. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, uh, eliminate fossil fuels, yeah. which is a fantasy. Uh, and uh, what's happening is that uh, the reality behind uh, these projects is finally, the economic reality is finally catching up. Catching up and, and, and finally being exposed as well, because, yeah, this is, it, it does seem to be more about the money than it is about saving the planet and certainly more than saving the whales. All right, let's take a break. We'll wrap things up with Terry Johnson, Senior Policy Advisor for CFAC. Find out more about them at CFAC.org. Welcome back. In our final segment now, we're talking with Terry Johnson, a senior policy advisor at CFAC as Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. You can find out more at CFAC.org. And um, we are just learning about a brand new study that CFAC released that concluded, among other things, that the net carbon dioxide reduction effects of offshore wind developments are hugely negative and cannot further justify investments in this industry. I mean, wow, we are definitely going to have to dig into that one some more. And unfortunately, I only just learned about that this morning. Can you kind of give us a 30,000-foot view of that? Sure. Uh, well, uh, the the rationale, supposedly, for uh, building these wind factories is that there's going to be uh, a positive impact on the planet, and there's going to be a reduction of carbon dioxide uh, arising from uh, this uh, whole enterprise. Uh, and the study that uh, CFAC did, that we did, uh, showed just the opposite. When you take into consideration all of the manufacturing that has to go in behind these massive uh, uh, structures uh, and all the steel and concrete and uh, rare uh, minerals and everything else that goes in, you're actually it, it not uh, reducing CO2. You're it, uh, possibly increasing it. So. Uh, even the uh, kind of tortured rationale uh, of uh, this whole thing uh, doesn't make any sense either. So uh, it's uh, it's uh, something that just uh, ought to be put to bed and gotten rid of. Well, you guys, um, we've been talking about this 60-day notice of intent to sue if the government doesn't do something here and uh, you're trying to protect these endangered species. You guys have successfully fought a planned New Jersey wind farm. Uh, we mentioned earlier that the Danish company that was going to do it pulled out. Uh, it cost them a direct $100 million fine to do so, and they wrote off a $4 billion loss. Public outcry really played a huge role in that, which CFACT helped rally. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, that had to feel good for you guys. Well, uh, it, it did, and the sense uh, that uh, the the marketplace is saying no to this as well as uh, other uh, organizations like us. I'll give kudos to the 
New Jersey uh, people who uh, were up in arms about this and uh, sued and had uh, rallies and did a lot of public outreach and education to make sure people understood that this made no sense whatsoever to build uh, these offshore wind factories. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think you're right. That played a, a role in the decision by the world's largest wind manufacturer to quit and not go uh, forward with his project in New Jersey. In talking with people there and, and the response that you guys were getting, was there anything in particular that really seemed to connect with people. I, I mean, um, anyone who has ever tried to kickstart a grassroots movement knows how hard it is to motivate people to actually pick up those pitchforks and torches. W- was there something specific that really seemed to resonate with people? Yeah, dead whales washing up on, <laughs> on the shores of New York and New Jersey. Hmm. That really resonated with people. Saying, hmm. what what's going on here? Why is all of this happening? Why are, are these animals being killed and washing up on shore? And it was because of the pre-construction work for uh, the wind for the farm slash factories uh, that uh, that caused it. And I think that really galvanized people to say, "This we got to look into this. This doesn't make any sense." And once they learned that it was unaffordable and unreliable, uh, and killed animals, they said, uh, enough, we're, uh, you know, we're going to be against this. Mm. Well, we certainly hope that we can see that here in Oregon, and um, because they are trying to push some offshore windmills off the southern Oregon coast, and actually really along the whole of Oregon coast, will your lawsuit that's seeking to stop this Virginia one, because you're looking at the cumulative effect um, that's that's having an impact on, on the uh, migration pattern there, do you think that your lawsuit there might have an impact out here and stop the ones that they're looking at developing here? Well, it could, uh, because it, it has to change the way that uh, Boehm looks at uh, and does econ- uh, environmental impact statements for uh, offshore uh, wind development. And uh, if uh, we succeed, and then it's pretty clear that there's a legal violation here, we think we will, that's a precedent. Uh, that can be used by the folks in Oregon. I have to say out in Oregon, uh, it's a floating offshore mm. wind factory, which it, it piles uh, ridiculousness on top of absurdity. So um, <laughs> uh, we, 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 we hope that uh, this is, uh, is going to not happen, of course. Well, if there's any place that can pile ridiculousness on top of absurdity, Oregon is it. But, you know, I'm very encouraged, though, because a lot of people, as they learn about this, they are starting to speak up about this. And even uh, there was a recent article that said that some tribes now are getting involved here. Uh, They don't want these offshore uh, wind farms either because they're in areas that they were trying to protect when they were trying to take the dams out. And now here they want to slap in some of these uh, wind farms. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, Terry Johnson, Senior Policy Advisor at CFAC. You can find out more by heading to CFAC.org. Terry, thanks again. Good. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. You can absolutely bet that we will be looking into that new study, which finds that windmills are not only colossal wastes of taxpayer dollars, but drive up global carbon emissions. Look at that. CO2, the supposed enemy in all things climate change, and windmills are increasing CO2, not reducing it. What a shocker. Just like they're willing to put out twice as much CO2 as the amount of hydrogen they create, as we learned a couple weeks back. But who cares about CO2 or whales when there are billions of dollars to make? Who are the greedy corporations now? Our next show won't be until after Thanksgiving, so a happy Thanksgiving to all of you out there. 
there's a lot to be thankful for, even if things are not quite going the way you'd like. Yes, our country is like an exploding whale right now, but let's work together to diffuse that. Because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.